Welcome to episode 160, Supervising Clinicians Serving BIPOC Children and Adolescents, Mediating Impact of Implicit Bias, featuring Dr. Sonia Sutherland, Licensed Professional Counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am honored and delighted to be joined again by Dr. Sonia Sutherland. Uh, She is a licensed professional counselor, and her specialization is really in all things diverse in helping individuals and organizations uh, improve their diversity and inclusivity um, through their practices and through their clinical work. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Sutherland, again. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's glad to be back and talk with you. I always enjoy talking with you. So for our listeners that don't know who you are, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background, and we will dive into today's topic, which is um, the work of supervision with clinicians who are serving BIPOC children and students and how we need to be aware of implicit racial bias in, uh, in supervision and in the therapy room and how, how those things interact. But before that, please, Dr. Sutherland, tell our listeners about you. Sure. Well, I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm currently a core faculty member at Walden University and um, chief diversity consultant to the president of Richmond Graduate University as well. Um, I have been in the field since 1998. Um, working in private practice, uh, in-home therapy, outpatient mental health, psychiatric residential. And my work primarily has been with teens and families uh, in most, in all of those spaces. Um, And so I come to this conversation with those past clients in mind and the understanding that there were so many things that I did not know about their experiences of discrimination, racism, and the impact of those on them, on their families, social determinants of health, all of that, that I wasn't aware of and I didn't get supervision about at all in my formative years. Um, And so I think this has become the passion for me now that I've done more work and more study and teach on it um, regularly. Um, I just think it's imperative for clinicians to really understand their clients holistically. And we say that we understand it, but really within the context of a social culture as well. Before you and I started recording, we were talking about the impact of the supervisor on the clinician and the fact that basically through a clinician, a supervisor is indirectly touching hundreds of clients and that for you, this is a foundational understanding of the work that you're doing as a supervisor because you're so aware and reflective of these themes that many supervisors may miss, um, particularly dominant culture supervisors, because it hasn't had to be on our radar. So we may not consider these profound implications and then be adding that ignorance to the work of our clinicians that we're serving as supervisors. So for today's conversation, why don't we start at the basics? Can you describe what implicit racial bias means to you? And let's use that as the springboard to have a bigger conversation about how that plays out in therapy and then in supervision and what we need to do differently. Sure. I think Understanding implicit bias, even before understanding implicit racial bias, is really important. Um, Implicit bias, we understand to be rooted in the unconscious, right? These are the things that we think about without thinking about them, right? It's those implicit assumptions that we make about other people, the ingrained beliefs about ourselves, about others, that for the most part, have been shaped just by our own histories, our family culture, our experiences, right? How we heard our parents or our relatives or our friends talk overtly about others or covertly insinuate about others just by facial expression or body language, right? Their choice of peers, who they hung out with, what church they went to, what what that church looked like in terms of racial composition, what it sounded like, all of that stuff contributes to implicit bias. And it just influences how we perceive people. It influences 
how we decide about their motivation, about the meaning of people's actions, the expectations, right, that we have. And we do that based on stereotypes that we attach, right? So it's really important that supervisors make sure that their supervisees understand all of that. And it's critical because it can't just be a one-time conversation. And it can't be a one-time conversation because implicit bias is really deceptive. It is easy to miss. And a one-time conversation can't really get us to that, right? I think people especially who believe themselves to be fair-minded, I think that I am, right, who don't wish to harm people regardless of their background, who appear accepting of everybody, we are the ones who are most likely pulled into the deception around implicit bias, right? That's And we miss it. And it can show up in our behavior, around others who are different. It even shows up in lack of action that we take about things that we very clearly recognize are negatively impacting diverse people. Right. And so even the nicest people are lulled into this apathy and it is implicit bias coming to the fore without us really, really realizing it. So that's kind of where implicit bias sits. Thank you. And I think for many people hearing the phrase implicit bias or implicit racial bias implies that we've done something wrong. Can you speak about that idea? Um, Because If we look at the social perception studies about race, about height, about age, and and this idea of implicit bias, it exists within all of us. And for listeners who may not know the difference between these, can you shed some light on the difference between implicit racial bias and racism? Mm. So racism, you can look at structurally as well as interpersonally. And and most often, the most critical piece is racism that is structurally uh, embedded in our institutions through policies, through procedures, um, through laws, statutes, state statutes, things like that. Um, Implicit bias is this thing that we don't recognize, and they're connected. You can't really separate them completely. But implicit bias leads to actions that are racist without the person necessarily being and having to call themselves racist. It's a distinction that I try to make to, for people. When you call people a racist, you are impugning who they are versus someone who tends to take actions that are racist. It's the action though. It's not the person, it's the action. And that action is influenced by implicit bias that they have, that they're unaware of. Thus, they're unaware that they're also um, behaving in a way that is racist or perpetuating racism. So they're different, but they're very connected as well. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So to recap what you just said, that implicit bias is basically the, if left unchecked, is the building block of racist action. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? Or discriminatory action, I guess I should say, if we're not if we're not looking specifically at implicit racial bias, but any kind of implicit bias, whether that's um, with people who have disabilities with neurodiversity, queer, all of these different ideas. Um, so for you as a supervisor, as you and I have talked before, you take great care and mindfulness in your work because you see the ripples that it has for clinicians. When you and I were talking about what topic to do today, um, can you speak a little bit about why this particular topic was important to you? So how we as supervisors can support awareness of implicit racial bias in our uh, supervisees. For our listeners, why does that matter? Why do we need to do this? Yeah, I think we need to do this because I consider supervisors social change agents. We have the opportunity to mold clinicians in their formative years. And the experience, the application, the person of the therapist development around culture responsivity that doesn't happen in graduate programs in our courses really falls to supervisors once students get to practicum and internship, and then once they're handed off to community supervisors who are overseeing their associate licensure 
and eventually signing off. We are the ones that are forming these clinicians. And if we don't really delve in intentionally around building a culturally responsive mindset, we're not talking about, I'm not talking about cultural competence. I am and I'm not. I am talking about building a, an internal mechanism in our supervisees, a mindset a mindset in our supervisees that becomes a frame, not an add-on, but a frame from which they operate. And in doing that, in doing that, we equip our supervisees to take action on behalf of clients, not just in the clinical room, but within systems within which they exist, the context that influences what we see in the clinical room, um, and supervisors are the ones who build that in our in 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 young clinicians. It's our responsibility. That's how social change happens when we become more aware, and clinicians are key to that. I know. So, speaking as a white woman, my first uh, traineeship and then subsequent internships or associateships, depending on what language you want to do, it was. Um, I would say unusual for me to end up working with white clients. I was very often um, working with clients of color and also um, specifically with children and adolescents. That was, that was my jam. That's what I was working with for years of my early career. And it was very obvious to me that we had very different backgrounds And I was fortunate in my supervision, um, I had a white supervisor, and it was an inherent part of every conversation (laughs) when we were looking at uh, ethnic considerations, cultural considerations, social framework, and um, to, to take every client and see all of these different shades and factors that may be contributing to who they are and how they're showing up in the room and what they're working toward. I was fortunate to have had that experience. And I think in a lot of ways may have been unusual for a conversation between a white therapist and a white supervisor. For you as a (laughs) non-white supervisor, as a supervisor of color, we've talked before about supervision and bringing race into into the supervision relationship. Where do you see this break down? Is it that white supervisors are not having these conversations with their white supervisees or that it's that no supervisors are having or too few supervisors, regardless of their own ethnicity or race, are having these conversations with supervisees? Yeah, uh, all of the above. And so, yes, I think the breakdown is that um, these conversations, by and large, are not being had between supervisors and supervisees, regardless of cultural and racial background. So white supervisors to white supervisees, white supervisors to supervisees of color, supervisors of color to white supervisees, supervisors of color to supervisees of color. There are um, um, deficiencies for everybody, right? And I think the breakdown is how do we do it? We, in our heads, know that we should do it. Yeah. But beyond asking the question, well, how do you think culture or race or difference may be contributing to what's happening? And it just being a basic question with an answer. What's not happening is the cultivating in our supervisees of, again, person of the therapist, cultural responsivity, not just and a simple answer to the question, how much are we holding them accountable for digging to find more information so their foundational knowledge is solid about different cultural groups? How much are we pressing our supervisees toward introspection? And how do we do that? How do we talk, get them to talk about racial identity development, their own and their clients? How do we get them to talk about um, why it's difficult to find cultural um, opportunities in terms of talking to our to their clients? Why is it difficult for us to know, lo, locate those, right? How do we talk to them about their intersection of identities? And when do we do it? Well, all the time, but how do we, how do we start that, right? All of those, how do we do it questions are 
the gap. It's where it breaks down. If we're looking at a cultural diversity class, we can have trainees that are able to spew facts <laughs> to say this ethnic group is more likely than this ethnic group to engage in yada, yada, yada behavior in relation to mental health or medical treatment or aging or uh, multi-generational households or whatever it is. And where you see the breakdown then is the application of that knowledge to um, that mindset to organizing information. As a really quick kind of 101 for supervisors who are listening to this or trainees and, and therapists, what is the impact? Just quick and dirty, and, and this needs to be its own episode, but let's talk about what's at stake here when clinicians don't understand the impact of implicit racial bias on uh, young people, on children, on students. And I don't mean just in therapy, but so what's happening educationally, what's happening institutionally when we're talking about um, their day-to-day in the systems of America, what are we talking about when we're looking at systemic racism and the impact on these kids? You are right. That is such a huge question that has so many components to it. I think one of the places it starts is understanding how social determinants of health impact students of color, families of color and students of color, um, and how that in turn shows up in the school building and interacts with bias that teachers may hold that then creates a student who is referred and to us for therapy, for behaviors that manifest in school. And so it really just, it, it, it goes back to our ability to cultivate in our supervisees some of these understandings. So when we talk about social determinants of health, we're talking about the conditions and the environments, right, where folks live and learn and work and play, the conditions in all of those environments, the risks and protective factors um, that influence outcomes, life outcomes, health, how they function, quality of life, right? And so all of that economic stability or instability, um, educational differences, healthcare differences, knowing and understand a lot of those types of things, how um, disparities impact families. I was at a training, I don't remember where, where I was, but a few years ago, might've been um, an AMCD training. And we had a professor from Harvard talk to us about his model that he called the ledge of marginalization. And he used that to describe how inequities and disparities, um, he used that to describe how inequities and disparities arise for families. And he talked about like this cliff, right? And this cliff, um, people exist on top of the, the mountain. And there's a difference between what type of barrier, protective barrier exists at the edge of that cliff in terms of like, public health interventions or addiction prevention or primary care checkup, right? Early detection stuff, right? That exists for some people, but on other people on the other side of that mountain, those protections are not there. And they're not there because of discrimination, criminal justice, food insecurity, um, poor housing conditions, lack of medical insurance and medical access to care, right? Um, all of that, creates this lack of a barrier. And when there's this lack of a barrier, it's much easier to get close to the edge of the ledge and fall over the ledge, right? And then when you fall over the ledge, what safety nets are there? Are there any, right? And so for people who have those protections, those safety nets, well, then they fall in the safety net and then they there, there may be um, less barriers for them for getting back up to that ledge and behind that protective barrier. But when there's none and you fall all the way to the bottom, it's a whole lot harder to get back to the ledge, right? Because you don't have the interventions that you need. And all of that happens with individuals of color who then also have what, what I think they call allocistic load, right? Allostatic, allostatic load, right? And all of that is just the physiological stuff happening. Um, the long-term adaptive responses that we have because we have to respond to racism day in and day out, right? And those are the things that influence our health systems, our body physically, makes us at risk for 
cardiovascular disease, diabetes, all those kind of things. If as supervisors, this basic understanding is not present for our supervisees, they won't ask the right questions of families when they come in. They won't have a frame that is not um, um, placing the problem with the individual primarily versus being able to see the individual within the context of the social culture and all that is happening, right? And so that's just basic in terms of what supervisors really need to help supervisees understand around implicit bias. And then beyond that, how do they understand the interaction that's happening with students and families in schools, right? Those understand, that understanding is really important as well, because when implicit bias hits the school in the form of the teacher or the administrators, the relationships that develop between students and teachers and administrators struggles. And we know that when that happens, students don't learn as well. They're not motivated, right? They don't engage the way that they need to engage in order to um, be able to move forward and to advance. And so understanding how that all shows up becomes super important as well. And there's so much more. Yeah. As you're, as you're naming these things, there's so much more we could spend many, many episodes just simply talking about all of these different factors and the systems that it's, that are at play to jump back to something you had said earlier, where you see the breakdown in supervision is um, not the ability to identify that these are things we need to discuss, but the actual execution of intervention in supervision. So what does it look like to not just have this be this heady, cerebral knowledge that we have that we should be doing, but then to actually check that box and turn that into a more culturally aware and responsive supervision session and relationship? And, and I shouldn't say session, because as you said, it's mindset, it's ongoing. So how do, you, how do you start to nurture that and put the pedal to the metal, so to speak? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we do have to help supervisees learn is how to talk or how to ask directly about race, about microaggressions, about um, any of the relationship stress that students or families may experience as they interact with the school system. Um, we are socialized not to talk about race from very early. We are taught to be colorblind. Everybody's the same. God loves everyone. We're one human race. All of that um, contributes to that socialization. And it's uncomfortable to talk about race. So, And it's uncomfortable to talk about a lot of different things. Xenophobia, homophobia, sizeism, that totally gets pushed to the side, right? Transphobia, all of these things that we don't necessarily talk about are critical to be able to learn to do that. And teaching our supervisees to learn to do that, starting with parents, becomes super important, as well as with children and teens, but primarily with parents at the very beginning in order to understand how these children have been socialized around race, around discrimination from the home. So for example, studies have kind of shown that parents of color have this kind of like protective strategy thing that they they engage in and that's how they named it, right? A form of social, uh, racial socialization. It's the messages that parents give their children about their attitudes, their beliefs, their values surrounding race, right? And so, for example, um, in this one study, um, and there is more than one, but in this one in particular, um, they were talking with Black mothers and who were expressing their concern around the level and impact of discrimination that they expected their sons to experience in educational settings, right? And so the protective strategies were aimed at mediating the impact of the discrimination on their children while they're attending school, right? And so the things they talk about with their kids and counselors need to know these messages and understand these messages from the parents, right? The history of structural racism, right? Their own personal, the parents' own personal um, experiences with racism in school, in other settings, how to navigate it in the outside world, right? And so I, I think of, when I think of that, I think of conversations I've had with parents um, about when they were stopped by the police and how they teach their children, their sons in particular, 
their black sons in particular, what do you do when you get stopped by the police? Well, you call me on the phone, put it on speaker, put it on the seat, put your hands 10 and 2 on the wheel. Keep your registration in the visor. Don't go in the glove box. Keep your hands 10 and 2 on the wheel, on the steering wheel, right? And this is 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 hammered by some parents into their sons because they know from experience and from what they see in the world that this is critical, right? Being placed in a class designated for emotionally behavioral uh, disruptive students while their test scores point to academic giftedness. Children, uh, parents talk to their kids around those types of things to prepare them for what they may experience, right? Teachers or counselors pointing them to technical school, not college, right? because they'll never succeed in college, right? Or your first day in AP class, uh, advanced placement, right? And getting asked, well, are you in the right class, right? Those are experiences that parents I've talked to have talked to their kids about. And so there's this frame of understanding that clinicians need to have. And if we're not asking teaching our supervisees to ask the right questions and to be comfortable talking about race and racism and discrimination, they will never get to this information. And they won't have the context that they need to have around the experiences that are forming and shaping these children and these families. Thank you for breaking that down as succinctly as you did, Dr. Sutherland. As you were talking about that, it reminded me of a story. Um, I was talking with a a colleague who um, is a mixed race. Uh, I think all the things (laughs) was was how he classified his racial identity. And um, he was judged to be Hispanic when he was a little kid and placed in an English second language class for kindergarten or first grade when his primary language was English and he was doing really poorly in the English English as second language class because it was taught in Spanish. And this went on for a couple of weeks and the school had placed this child in the wrong class on the assumption that because this child looked Hispanic, they must only speak Spanish. And those examples happen all the time in these ideas of of where teachers or administrators are shuffling students and how they're moving things around. And um, also, as you were talking about it, my awareness as a white clinician, having worked in environments with these norms that are absolutely handed down generally, generationally, and they're protective to a family system and, and to a culture and community at large. And also being aware that I, as a white clinician in that, represent, I, I am inherently representing part of the problem, part of the system. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I remember for me as a therapist, so for my education, my licensure is a licensed marriage and family therapist. But wouldn't you bet that some of these families had interacted with white social workers before and that those yeah. may not have been positive experiences for them? And that that was um, in the ether of these therapy sessions. And, and how do you prepare clinicians yeah. for those conversations? Um because it, I'm trying to think back, and it was you know it's many years ago. But how, how did my supervisor even talk to me about it? Because it's like I am very representative of dominant culture. Just look at me, and you know it. <laughs> my privilege is written all over my forehead. Um, and how how do you, as a supervisor, help clinicians start to shift their perspective to see all of these? interrelated factors instead of seeing them as, as just these factoids on some page on a cultural, cultural diversity book. Yeah. I focus on their self-awareness development first. Um, the factual knowledge is, is relevant, obviously, but what's more important is their own um, development of understanding of where their bias is and how to move through it, how to Um, overcome it and continually recognize bias as it continues to show up. Um, Because it's never that you recognize bias, you dress it and it goes away. That's not really how it goes. It's it's continuous. And so starting with that self-awareness piece um, becomes really important. I, I always caution myself 
um, not to leave the self-awareness piece alone or too far behind or out of the conversation, even as we're talking about the clinical relationship with um, clients and families of color, right? Because if they haven't done the work, everything is predicated on the work that you do for yourself, right? And so the work you do on yourself, the way that you build yourself as, you know, work on your person of the therapist around cultural responsivity is, well, engage with other cultures outside of the clinical room. Forget the clinical room for a minute. Who am I? Who am I as a person, right? And when we press our supervisees, when we do it ourselves as supervisors, and then from our own experiential knowledge and understanding and growth that we have experienced, we then can press our supervisees to do the same because we will have done it and understand the um, implications of not having done it right? That's where it really does have to start. The knowledge is one thing, but it has to start with pressing the introspection and discussions around who are you as a person, because you bring yourself to the clinical room. So if you don't know yourself in that frame, what do you bring into the clinical room? And, and the reality is without having done the work, implicit bias, again, is implicit. And so you will microaggress against people of color, families of color, students of color, and not even know it because you're not aware of it. Implicit bias is not on the, in the consciousness space. It's implicit. It's in the unconscious. So you won't even know unless you're doing that self-awareness work. I appreciate the example you just gave about um, the supervisor in their own life outside of the clinical realm to be working through these aspects themselves and then offering an example and carrying it through into supervision. When we're looking at what I'll call clinical presentation for a client or for a family in therapy, we need not look very far to see examples of implicit racial bias in diagnosing and treatment planning. Can Again, this is an episode, many episodes in and of itself. Can you give me the basics here? Um, but why it's really important that we bring race into the room and we encourage our supervisees to be considering all of the factors of a person and not ignoring this, um, just even starting at diagnosis. What are the risks here of implicit racial bias and diagnosis? The reason that we have to bring race into the conversation is because the day-to-day -day lives of individuals of color are influenced by their race, negatively by their race in many cases. And so not bringing it into the conversation ignores racially um, injurious stress that is present for individuals of color and racial trauma. There's a difference, but just the stress piece of it, it doesn't always have to be considered quote unquote trauma, but stress injury because of race becomes a uh, um, a real thing. And without it, you can't really create that relationship of trust that you need. They need to really get a sense of your authenticity when you validate their experiences, when you understand that you don't know everything, but you're responsible and you know some things, and then have an honest desire to know more in order to help more effectively. So for example, um, you don't know everything, but you know some, well, you ought to know, everybody ought to know what's happening sociopolitically in the world um, and in our country in particular that impacts people of color. And, and we ought to be thinking about it. I think, for example, voting rights in Georgia, the redrawing of lines that impacts, you know, um, how people of color have access to the vote right? There is going to be in the minds of everyone what they think about it. But for supervisors and clinicians, beyond that personal space, we have to investigate from a, a much more um, unsubjective space, objective space. What could this mean? How could this be influencing how people think about the world and themselves, people of color? How could the bomb threats at HBCUs be, be influencing how people of color think about race themselves, the level of control they have in the world, 
the lack of control they may have in the world, the danger that may be present for them in places where they may not have expected that danger, what levels of danger, all this, this is important to think about. Because if I, as a Black woman, come to you for therapy, you better believe that the whole conversation about and I live in Georgia, the whole conversation about voting rights is in my head at some point, and I'm reacting to it, even if it's not obvious or not having a direct conversation. When the HEBCUs experience the bomb threats, it is injurious to me. It is stressful to me as a Black woman. And if my therapist doesn't recognize, well, what, what's the impact? You're missing such a huge piece of my presentation. So being able to talk about those things becomes super important. And for our listeners, HBCU is historically back at college and university, just uh, to explain the acronym. But thank you, um, Dr. Sutherland. You're basically describing the framework that has to be visible to the clinician, tangible to the clinician, to even begin uh, seeing the complexity of that person or family that's in front of them. And you and I touched on it before in our last conversation, but we, so we exist in this paradigm in the United States as we're recording this in 2022, where we're operating through the diagnostic manual that has many limitations and has many cultural blinders uh, to say the least. And that when we're looking at the application of diagnoses to the same set of symptoms, the way that they're applied to people of color, to queer folk, to women versus men, to how these nuances show up and that they also can become part of the problem um, that we now are, we clinicians are representing the system that has continually labeled something as pathological that is not pathological. And we're creating treatment for a problem that is not actually a problem that that person has because it's a systemic problem. Right. That's a big undertaking. <laughs> it's a huge undertaking. And it's hard to, it's hard to, to, and that's why this whole conversation about cultural responsivity is an ongoing lifelong process to a degree. Well, you know, if we just think about, for example, diagnosis, misdiagnosis, like we can talk about it from the frame of um, boys of color being overly diagnosed with bipolar disorder at younger and younger ages without considering some of the social determinants that are influencing their behaviors, right? And so what we're looking at may be trauma, not bipolar disorder, but trauma, right? And do we see it? Do we recognize it and understand how it's coming from the schools, the interactions with other spaces in the community, food scarcity, just all of those things? So asking the right questions becomes super important. You know, as, as much as the DSM-5 and well, all of them, but the DSM-5 has, and now the TR, have deficiencies. Um, still, the cultural formulation interview is a helpful tool for supervisors to really teach their supervise, uh, supervisees to use, because it really does allow for understanding much better contextually what's happening. Because you hear and you're asking, you're hearing for in, in the language of 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 the people that are being interviewed. I mean, for example, some of the questions on the the, the cultural formulation interview um, would be, how would you describe your this thing to your friend, the problem to a friend? Now you're going to hear it in language that's different, right? Um, what might your family or friends, your community think is causing the problem? And you hear different language around it, right? And so that particular interview that particular interview is is super important. For example, when you're working with, um, let's say you're working with immigrant populations, right? Hispanic immigrants, um, African immigrants, anybody, any immigrants in particular, really digging into, now you have this kid who comes, you know, referred for whatever the reason may be, um, dig into, well, with the parents, why did you leave your country of origin? How long have you been here? Right. These are questions that I think are so helpful. And I was listening uh, to a training by a psychologist out of New Jersey. Um, 
I think her name was Dr. Pizarro. I don't remember, but she had a list of questions that were super important and helpful um, for asking families, immigrant families, because it really put context around what the family had experienced that influenced the child, that shapes the presentation in the classroom and other places. So really being able to to dig into those things and teach our supervisees, how do you do that initial assessment? What are the things that you are, are really, really needing to ask about? Even something as simple as teaching them to use like the trauma symptoms of discrimination scale, right? That's an easy two-page scale that you can teach your supervisees to use that puts a frame around discrimination, right? Being unfairly treated and the experiences, right? And so if you're using that with a school-age individual, their family, a teenager, and you're asking about discrimination they've experienced because of their gender or their race or their sexual orientation, or, you know, you have opened up a door to understanding because now you are showing these clients, well, you have some understanding that there's a whole lot more out there to your presentation than just what people say is wrong with you, the child, or you, the teenager. There's a whole lot more there. And believe you me, when you start with that frame, you will get a whole lot more out of these families and kids. The connections will come. The trust will come because they know that you're looking, that you understand that there's more and you're not just kind of falling into that home, blame the individual, the problem is in you and only work on you type of therapy. One of the experiences that I've had, which is vulnerable for me to bring up, um, I've had the experience of inviting these conversations clinically and I'm hearkening back to when I was a trainee and um, trying to bring it into the room and the answer being no. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so saying, you know, what has been your, your uh, experience of discrimination? None. Uh, what experiences have you had, you know, related to your um multi-ethnic adoption experience. None, totally normal. How do you work with those situations and, and trainees? Because the assessment process, I think when, I, when I'm looking at like the clinical cycle, if you will, assessment is so damn intimidating. You know, that first session when you're sitting down with somebody and so you're aware how you're sitting and where they're sitting and do they have, you know, do they have tissues? <laughs> <laughs> and you have your, your paperwork in front of you. Um, and especially if you are a dominant culture therapist having conversations about race and you are likely representative of the institutions that have contributed to racial trauma um, for that individual, what do we do when the answer is no or we're not going to talk about it, even though we, we clinically may believe this is part of the equation? We accept the no and we wait until enough trust has been built that allows them to be able to to, to open, to go through the window that you opened initially. Um, it will make complete sense for a person of color, families of color, not to go there with a white clinician, even when they ask at the very beginning. But the asking is important because it's in the back of the minds of the family and the kid that you opened a door, even though they weren't willing to go through it because they don't know you. They don't know you, right? They don't know if you are going to be another experience of racial trauma, stress, injury. They have no clue. So absolutely, they're going to be protective of themselves and of their children and of their families and say, no, this is not something that we want to discuss. So respecting that and waiting um, as you and as you continue to talk with families and children, one of the things that supervisors want to to help them, help our supervisees become more adept at is recognizing cultural opportunities. Um, The multicultural orientation framework that Hook and his peers developed talk about cultural opportunities. And before you can get to cultural opportunities, there has to be a level of cultural comfort that exists within a clinician. 
Now we go back to, well, how do you get to cultural comfort, right? Well, before that is cultural humility. Before that is delving into self-awareness. Before that is talking about your own bias. Before that is talking about your racial identity development. Before that is talking about your intersection of identities and all of those things that impact your life. These are all requisite pieces of being able to develop cultural humility, cultural comfort, as much as you can to be able to recognize opportunities when they arise and go through them and take the opportunity. So it's a process. It is a process. And helping our supervisees know that they're probably going to screw it up the first few times is really important too, because it's a process of learning and developing. So, you know. So you, you bring up um, a difficult reality of supervision. We are not operating at the Paul Mitchell um, school of hair. So a bad haircut by a trainee um, barber has different implications than a bad assessment, particularly with marginalized communities. How do you, I guess, almost try to pave the road in front of your clinician for the fact that they're going to screw up? in order to bumper and protect those clients. I'm going to back up away from the, the, the client and the supervisee for a minute and say that as a supervisor, the question I'm going to ask myself is, how do I repair when I screw up with my supervisees? What does that conversation sound like? Because the demonstration and modeling of that conversation in supervision is influential in the ability of that supervisee to do the same with their clients. Parallel process is a thing. It's a real thing. And we know that, right? And so, again, we have to go back. It starts with the supervisor. It doesn't start with the supervisee. It starts with the supervisor having done their own work. They're not going to be comfortable bringing it up with the supervisee if they haven't done their own work as well. And so our forthrightness about not knowing everything, right, but being um, responsible to know some things and honestly desiring to know more, as we demonstrate that in supervision with our supervisees of color, with our white supervisees, we are modeling that process and we are beginning to help them understand what that road looks like. And we are paving the road with our own modeling. Does that make sense? It does. And it's, it's one of the scary realities of being new in this field and supervising individuals who are new in this field. I look back at my traineeship and at my internship, and I, I have some memories there in that diary in my mind that makes my, <laughs> makes my eye kind of twitch a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> because I really missed the mark. Um, and sometimes it was not something I could repair. You know, I, I'm sure many listeners had the experience where you had an intake or a certain number of sessions and you misstepped and then the person doesn't come back and you don't get the opportunity to repair. And then you also know simultaneously that you as a trainee are now part of the problem because it's less likely for that person to feel safe going to therapy in the future. So how do we as supervisors increase this awareness? Um, and I appreciate what you're saying, which is we do it by um, using the parallel process to our advantage. So it's not teaching by teaching, it's teaching by example to make the space to have that, um, that mismatch happen to try to repair it. Yeah. And, and I think too, that, that, as clinicians, we <clears throat> want to realize that building that foundation of trust requires a level of vulnerability as well on the part of the clinician. So I like feedback-informed treatment, right? And I also meld that into feedback-informed supervision. But the reason for feedback-informed treatment is that it allows space for there to be a conversation with your clients of color to say, um, I want to do this kind of assessment or just a couple of questions after every session because it's important to me to understand the areas where I may um, have been really helpful and the areas where maybe I was not as helpful, right? I missed the mark, right? 
I am aware, and I'm, I'm speaking as a clinician and pretending I'm speaking to, to, a, to a, a client, I'm aware of, for example, I'm aware of the differences between us racially, age-wise, and I'm also aware that I might make a misstep someplace unintentionally, right? And I really want to open the door to, if that happens, how you can tell me and how we can kind of repair a potential for rupture because you know people are human we in our society we just we just are really struggling with race discrimination gender differences all those type of things so it makes sense it's going to seep into our clinical space and i don't want that to interfere with the work that that you want to do I want to be able to support you. So I, I want to open that door to feedback from you and conversation between us when something pops up that doesn't feel right. And having that, teaching our supervisees to have that type of conversation and to be of open to learning, transparency, as well as learning becomes super important. And if we do that in supervision, then they can do that in uh, work with their clients. It'll be less scary because they saw it happen in supervision. They felt it with the supervisor, supervisor, and they understood how it felt. And so they can speak from that experience now when they're with their clients. Goodness knows I'm never going to shy away from a conversation about feedback-informed treatment. And I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up that point in the context of this bigger conversation about implicit bias and those missteps as I think about it, for those missteps that I had that all of us have, you know, it's just, it's, you're getting the hang of it. We're going to mess up. Um, as I think back, I didn't have feedback informed treatment. I didn't know it uh, in my internship. Um, well, until well into my internship. And so actually, as you said that, I was thinking back at the times that I wince now where I'm like, I said what? And I did what? And then what happened um, in my learning curve? that if I had had the tools at the time and new feedback-informed treatment, that was much more likely to have been crisis-averted um, because we wouldn't have ended session awkwardly. <laughs> there would have been the opportunity to say, I expect, I've, I've already inoculated you to say that I am going to mess up and that when that happens, the door is open and I want to create um, a, a foundation in our relationship where we can talk about that and how that would have been so different in those wince-worthy experiences um, where I missed the mark to try to correct it and to repair and to actually give it um, the attention that it needed and that that extends beyond um, accurate attunement and empathy in feedback-informed treatment to the conversation that we're talking about today, that through the use of feedback-informed treatment, you create a foundation of feedback, including the possibility of wounds related to discrimination and racism. Yes. And it starts with the supervisor. If we can do that with our supervisees, have the same conversation, white supervisors with supervisees of color, supervisors of color with supervisees of color, because it's not all that, you know, just because you're a supervisor of color doesn't mean that you, you've cornered the market or that you know, you don't know, we don't know everything. Um, supervisors of color with white supervisees and supervisors, white supervisors with white supervisees as well. It, it, it's critical. It's critical. Knowing that trainees in particular are green by nature of being trainees, part of their education their development as a clinician is, of course, supervision, but also their outside learning outside of the clinical room, outside of supervision, as you said, you know, for me as a supervisor to be intentional about the people I'm spending time with and, and what I expose myself to, to continue growing and learning. Do you see yourself as a conduit to connect your trainees um, or supervisees with further learning? be that podcasting, documentaries, books, um, because there's also that um, that also wince-worthy reality that uh, therapists have been known on occasion when working with a client unlike themselves to say, tell me everything about that so I can learn about mm -hmm. racism through your eyes, client mm -hmm. of color. Mm -hmm. um, 
I would imagine you see yourself as, as a conduit to avoid that <laughs> and us putting yeah. the pressure on the client to teach us about their family system yes. um, through a cultural lens or their religion or whatever it is. That's a lot of homework for you. How do you do that in supervision to make sure that you're um, scratching that itch, hopefully in supervision so that they don't try and scratch it with clients? Sure. So yes, it is important to give your supervisee resources and hold them accountable for actually utilizing the resources and coming back to supervision to discuss what they learned and how it applies clinically to work that they could be doing with individuals of color. So, for example, and, and what we're building here is a foundation of understanding of the sociopolitical context, the sociocultural context within which people live and that influence them. So, while we will understand foundationally racism, structural racism, what it looks like, how it, what it, how it developed, where it came from, how it's impactful in the past and now, we still do, yes, um, with that foundation. So absolutely having your supervisees uh, read resources. So for example, read White Fragility with your supervisee and process what they're learning from that. Assign them to watch the movie 13th, the documentary 13th, and process that with them. Talk to them about all those things in the context of your multicultural counseling competencies, self-awareness, um, marginalization, privilege, structural racism and how it develops, all of those types of things. So yes, have them listen to the podcast 1619. Dr. Sutherland, we've hit on so many points during this interview that could easily be their own series of podcasts. And thank you for staying with me in um, really condensing some very complicated concepts for the purpose of, of this conversation. For our listeners, they're interested in um, the other podcast episode that Dr. Sutherland did with me. Please look it up. We were having a conversation about inviting race into supervision, and, and it's um, also in the same vein as what we're talking about today. Dr. Sutherland, for our listeners that want to learn more about you and about your work, um, please let us know how to do that. Sure, sure. So um, you can find additional information on uh, the work that I do through my website, drsonyasutherland.com. And you can also have access to continuing education workshops that I provide around this, where I talk about my cultural civility developmental model, where I teach supervisees how to develop a cross-culturally responsive practice mindset in supervisees. Um, and that website is legacyprofessionaldevelopment.com. So you can find information for me and for the trainings that I do at, on those websites, drsonyasutherland.com and legacyprofessionaldevelopment.com. Com. Wonderful. And are there any um, books or resources that have been particularly helpful for you as you've developed this in your career as a supervisor? Yeah. Myth of Equality was a book that was um, really helpful for me to have read. It gave me um, perspectives that I had not thought about before and that were helpful in my conversations with my white peers uh, and specifically my white Christian peers. Um, the movie 13th was also very helpful for me. Um, there is a series, a documentary series, Race, the Power of an Illusion. If you have not seen that, then your formation and understanding of race in this country is sorely um, deficient. Um, unless you have been exposed to material um, in other places that 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 covers all that that doctor documentary series covers, um, those are some that would be super helpful as well. And I do when you go to my website, there's a resources tab. You'll also be able to find a list of resources there as well, books and videos um, that could be helpful for your formulation just around cultural diversity. Um, an understanding of discrimination, XYZ. Wonderful. Um, 
Thank you for taking this time to talk about a topic that uh, is very personal to you and something that you have really dedicated your career to. So thank you for letting all of us learn from that expertise to improve our practice of supervision. I sincerely appreciate it. Absolutely. It is my pleasure to be here. And, you know, I just want to encourage your listeners. We are all in a process or a journey of growth. And we all start from different places, but we just continue from where we are. So, you know, I I just really encourage folks to start if they haven't. Just start, you know, begin at the, the beginning and then go from there. Thank you so much, Dr. Sutherland. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.